Hello and welcome to episode number five of the Abundant Living Ecuador podcast. It is a gorgeous day today here in Loja, Ecuador. Sun is shining and life is good. And it's Friday. It is Friday, although maybe Tuesday we're there listening. <laughs> I am uh, Jesse Bayer here with Darnell Dunn. We're the co-founders and managing partners of Abundant Living Ecuador. Before we get to today's show, let me get the business out of the way. Um, you can reach us on our website, www.abecuador.com. That's A as in boy, A as in apple, <laughs> B as in boy, ecuador.com. Uh, we also have a toll-free line, 888-999-0948. That's 888-999-0948. And our email address is info at abecuador.com. Uh, so jumping right in, where would you, where'd you like to start? Oh, why don't we talk a little bit about financing for our company? Uh, as you know, we are growing rapidly, uh, have a lot of opportunities to really create a really strong footprint in the real estate business in Southern Ecuador. And to do that, um, having more capital would facilitate the process. Um, so we're actively looking for capital. Should we talk a little bit about numbers or some things about our story that might attract potential investors? Where should we start? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess, I mean, uh, you know, we didn't come to Ecuador to start a real estate company. We started a real estate company because when we were in Ecuador, we realized the opportunity was so great, it wasn't one to pass up. Um, some of the background to what makes this such an amazing opportunity, the, the time and business that we're in, is that when we spent uh, the better part or even a little more than a year uh, here in southern Ecuador looking for land, we realized how the process works, um, the, you know, both the, both the purchase process and due diligence process, or excuse me, the search process and due diligence process, and just how many holes there were uh, in the process, in the market itself, in terms of buyers and sellers finding each other. Um, and we realized, hey, you know, we need to start this company to fill a void, to, you know, provide a need that's currently sorely lacking in this, in the market in southern Ecuador. So, um, you know, we're kind of the only show in town in a, and I say in town, you know, yes, in Loja, not to say there aren't other agents, but there aren't other agents going about selling real estate like we are, and there's almost no agents anywhere in, in any of the towns listing any of the amazing pieces of property that are for sale here. Right. Because most people in their approach as a real estate agent, you say you're looking to sell your property, Jesse, you come to me, I say, great, you know, I'll charge you whatever percentage we agree on. I put together a a word document with a picture and a couple details about your property and I stick it on my window outside of my office and hope that somebody walks by and is looking for the property that you have. Right. Um, whereas, as you know, we're, we have a pretty sophisticated approach to how we're going about growing the potential market for somebody's property here. And there's a growing amount of people from West, the Western world Europe, Canada, the United States, who are looking for places to live and relocate in South and Central America. So there's a growing market there, and we're really exposing these properties um, to a wider audience in a way that you know, nobody else, at the very least in this region, is doing. And the fact that we are from the United States, in the United States and our English speakers is also um, facilitates the process of allowing us to give potential buyers an idea of what it's like to live here from our perspective and to help them avoid not only all the pitfalls of buying and selling property, but also of moving to a foreign country where chances are they haven't been before. Right. Um, exactly. So, I mean, the, the opportunity here is just tremendous. Um, you know, basically, we're the, we're the only show in town in a, in a country that's growing and in a country that's just now being discovered internationally. And in this particular part of Ecuador, there's just essentially no competition. And as a result of there having been no of there being no competition, it's just a very new market because there hasn't been access. But people are discovering it now, so it's a you know it's a chance to really take over um, at the very least the southern Ecuadorian real estate market 
fairly rapidly, and we have a pretty aggressive plan for expansion in terms of where we're going to open new offices in order to, you know, geographically be able to take on that portion of Ecuador. Um, so it's an opportunity to be the best and only show in town in a in a region of a country, and could easily could very easily expand from there um, to the whole country if if um, you know we go that route. Right. You know, a couple other points that I think are important to mention. Now we're saying we've got a chance to take over the market. We're expanding the market for four properties to other areas of the world that typically haven't been exposed to. But I think it'd be interesting to talk a, a, a little bit about how that's being received by potential sellers. So here are a couple of numbers that I think are very interesting to really illustrate that point. Number one, we've got 24 properties under agreement, 17 of which are exclusively listed properties. Generally speaking, people do not give exclusivity to people. Um, and if they do, it's for a much shorter period of time. The longest you'll ever hear of that being done is six months. We're getting 12 months. Um, the average commission rate is 3% or so. We, we have an average commission rate um, a good amount above that. So we're getting a premium over the properties for, for selling properties that other agents are getting. And we're also getting more buy-in in terms of having longer agreements than, than the average. Right, which just really illustrates well that you know, the sellers have recognized what we bring to the table in terms of the opportunity that's in front of us that we're taking advantage of. Um, so anyhow, we just wanted to throw that out there. We are currently um, procuring financing, considering potentially taking on investors. We haven't gone down that road yet, but if it was the right fit and somebody was interested, we would be interested in, in having that conversation. Right. And, you know, more than willing to open up the books and, and talk more about numbers and projections and uh, what we feel we can do uh, in terms of business in the next um, 12 to 18 months. So on to uh, the meat of today's show. Um, so we wanted to get into a little bit of investing stuff today. Um, I guess I guess currency would be an interesting, interesting uh, place to start. We chatted a little bit last week um, about currency, about gold and silver, uh, about China. We may have even mentioned a bit. Um, and I think it'd be good to dive into some of the details of those things um, a little more broadly. You know, we uh, these, these shows are recorded live. Um, we don't edit. Uh, we don't really prepare. Um, so, you know, you get you get what it is. So a lot of this just comes off our off our head. Um, but maybe we can do a little bit better job of, of giving you some of the details of the story on some of the things we touched on last week. Yeah. So in terms of currency, um, should we start with gold and silver? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll take over this portion of things then. Um, you know, something that's interesting about gold, I mean, you hear a lot about gold and silver, uh, especially in the context of having a, um, a strong dollar. So people are saying, well, you know, why would I want to go buy gold? Or, you know, gold is falling in, in relation to the dollar or, you know, whatever you might hear. And I think it it's oversimplifying what gold is. I mean, gold is, a, is really a currency just like, you know, paper money is. And What's interesting about it, and I think why people should think about holding it, is that you don't have, it's not manipulated in the same way that paper currency can be manipulated. You can't naked short sell gold because you can't just print it. Um, there's not enough physical gold out there to cover all of the contracts that are out there. So somebody might say, well, you know, I own GLD, which is um, in... What's that? What's the that? ETF. Yeah, the uh, ETF. Yeah. yeah, an exchange-traded fund of gold and say, well, you know, I own gold because this is backed by it. Well, 
you know, how is that actually going to work when you say that you want to get the gold? Okay, give me the gold that I own, that this paper says I own. Um, there's a lot of things that can happen there. And if there's not enough gold in the world to cover all of the claims that are out there, well, then what do you really own? Right. And that's um, such an important factor when you're looking at gold and silver. Um, you know, these are markets that are manipulated down in, in price in terms of paper price. And there's two reasons that they're able to do that. One is, is what you mentioned, you know, that the, the brokerage houses don't back the paper contracts with gold. So you could have a certain amount of gold in a safe somewhere that's backing 50 times. And I don't know the exact numbers. Nobody does. People make estimates, but are, are backing 50 times the amount of gold that they have physically in a paper contract, you know, whether that's a futures contract or part of an ETF or, you know, any other form of, of paper um, ownership of gold. So you have a situation where you have, you can have demand increase by a lot for paper gold and they can just keep writing new contracts without, without having to supply the actual metal. So the, actual price of the metal is not so very re related to the paper price that you see going by on the ticker. Um, and then, the, of course, the other thing with silver in particular, I believe it's gold as well, although I, I forget actually this fact, but the silver markets certainly, I assume the gold markets as well, you're allowed to naked short. So what they do, what they do in those markets is they can put downward pressure on the price of the metal without having to borrow the actual shares to do so. Mm. So in a normal, you know, in a normally when you're short selling a stock or you're short selling anything, you have to borrow those shares from someone that holds them in order to be able to place the short on it. So there's a mechanism that limits the amount of um, downward pressure. Downward pressure, yeah. The amount of manipulation that you can, you know, you could implement on the asset. Paper, gold, and silver. Well, I'm positive about silver. I forget with gold, but paper, silver, you can sh naked short without any limit on that on that ability. So what they what the big houses do, I believe it's J.P. Morgan mostly with silver, but they they when they want the price to go down, they put a lot of naked shorts out. A lot of shorts out, and that puts the downward price on the pressure on the metal, and they control the the paper price that way. So, you know, you're you've got some fundamentals just on those two things that make you understand that the price that you can buy gold and silver for right now with paper dollars um, versus what that physical asset is actually worth is you know not not connected and you're going to do very very well on that right the other aspect of it is that you know it can't be inflated you can't create gold or silver out of thin air so because there's a limited quantity of it in the world and banks and other financial institutions aren't in charge of its creation and it's not being, you know, created at interest either. <laughs> right. <laughs> you important know, that, caveat. Yeah, very important caveat. Well, then now you really have a, a store of value in a way that fiat currencies just can't provide. Right. And just to run through, excuse me, the history of that really quick, you know, throughout history, and I mean as far back as anyone can go, um, and of course there's been some other systems, but gold and silver have been money you know gold and silver are money um you know with Bretton Woods in 1944 the dollar became the convertible currency for all other currencies in the world but the dollar was backed by gold so all of the other currencies in the world were backed by the dollar the dollar was backed by gold in 1971 when Nixon closed the gold window it was the first time in the history of currency that of in the world, <laughs> that currency was no longer backed by a physical asset, namely gold or silver. So this is a, you know, 40 something year experiment that we're on here of uh, fiat currency of debt based money without the backing of, of gold and silver. Mike Maloney, who I, who I uh, enjoy his stuff, he, he claims, uh, he put a figure out there that says, and this is actually a little bit old, it would be 
quite a bit higher now because it's related directly to how much money is in circulation. He makes the point that for gold to back the currency that's currently in circulation, and this would have been like 2010, uh, it's currently in the circulation, gold would rise to $15,000 an ounce. Hmm. Just just to back just to back the currency as it has been throughout history and as it always returns to um, right now. Um, another example of inflation as it relates to gold or, or silver, you know, in the 1980s, and I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but you can look them up. In the 1980s, for example, in 1979, if you sold a home for the median home price of that home, you took that money, you put it in metal, you lived through the inflation of the 80s, and then, you know, late 80s, early 90s, you took that metal, converted it back into homes, you would have gone from something like one home to 17 homes or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, I don't remember. But, you know, you would have multi... So when, and that's an important thing as well connected to this subject is... When you're looking at assets and you're looking at investing and you're looking at the value of things, be careful what you're, what you're denominating it in. So I can say like, hey, you know, I bought this house in 1950 or my grandfather bought this house in 1950. He spent $6,000 and I just sold it for $2 million. So, you know, I'm rich. Okay, maybe. But did your spending power increase or decrease from that $6,000 to whatever price you sold it for? You know now. Yeah, I mean, guaranteed you could buy a lot more with that six thousand dollars that your grandfather bought that house for in nineteen fifty, for you know, for for not much more than it. It's like the number doesn't really tell you much about the m- number doesn't really tell you much about what you're able to buy with that money. And so, if you were to look at that same example of you know, how much gold and silver could you have bought with that amount of money now versus then? Exactly. Or how many loaves of bread could you have bought or how many gallons of milk or something like that? Um, because ultimately, all a currency is, is a medium of exchange in a store of value. So if I can, if I have, if I have, you know, a car and, you know, and I, and you want my car, well, then, you know, you're I'm going to sell it to you, but then I need something in return. So the paper is something that I take in return because I think it's worth something. But, you know, that can that that equation can easily change, you know, given the example that you were just talking about, about, you know, if we took all of the currency that was outstanding in 2010 and tried to back it by gold or silver as it has been done in the past. And that, you know, that um, equation always does change it changes every day it's called inflation so you know the the value of your currency decreases every day every single day so the idea that somehow holding your wealth in currency is a good idea is just wrong Um, and it's always been wrong and i'm not sure quite exactly how they've convinced people to think that way but it's just wrong you're holding it would it's the same as like holding your it would be like holding your assets in a car. It's a devaluing asset, just like a car. So, you know, if you go and look at a chart, for example, of the value of the dollar over time, it just goes down. It doesn't go any other direction. So the and of course, that chart is going to look the same, or excuse me, that chart is going to be inverse to the money supply chart or to an inflation chart or to almost any any other chart of any asset priced in dollars because right. the more dollars are produced the more dollars it takes to buy whatever the thing is or to purchase that share of stock which means the stock quote price is higher but priced in what priced in dollars but the dollars are worth less right so. yeah it's just like yeah it's just like saying the more dollars you print the less each dollar is worth sure Exactly. So, you know, gold and silver is just a tremendous, tremendous investment for a lot of reasons. Um, You know, obviously it holds its spending power over time, and that's what you're interested in, spending power. You're not interested in the figures in your bank account. You're interested in if I, how much of X can I get for what I have? And that's only going to go down if you're saying how much of X can I get for what I have in dollars? 
unless your dollars is in, unless your amount of dollars is increasing at a faster rate than they're losing value on then you're you're losing money right and we talked a little bit about how we look at real estate here in Ecuador as similar to gold and silver in terms of some of having some of those same characteristics um, the one thing you'd say about Ecuador is that is that um is that they're just you know just like gold and silver you're having you have an asset that's not really leveraged to financial markets in the sense that you have his, you have a market here that's historically been a cash market so you know if mortgage rates go up by 2% or go down by 2% that's not really going to have a material effect on the out, outstanding land that's available to be purchased yeah, i mean even if the debt market's collapsed even if the dollar collapsed would real estate in Ecuador short, lose some value? Sure. I mean, if you're in the cities, you'd probably lose a lot of value. If you're talking about a large, productive piece of land, you you may you may go up in value. I'm not sure, but you're not gonna you're not gonna lose your shirt. That's for sure. Right. I would just also jumping back to the gold for a second. If you're if you're thinking about buying gold and silver, my advice for you would be to buy coins. Um, there's a few advantages of coins that have that coins have over bullion over bars and that is uh, number one is that their report they have a face value so for example if you're buying a US Eagle you know which is a one ounce Eagle and its value quote value might be whatever you know is whatever the spot price is that day so maybe it's you know a thousand dollars twelve hundred dollars whatever gold's at but the uh, face value is a hundred dollars so for travel purposes, if you're traveling, you're reporting that as a monetary asset of $100, and that's how you're supposed to report it. So you could, for example, you could move around a lot of assets unreported in that way, which is a nice benefit of coins. Um, they're really, they're easily recognizable. So if you're going to buy, if you're looking to sell coins versus bars, they're much easier to sell. And, and they're harder to counterfeit. Bars are, are easier to counterfeit than coins. Not that you can't counterfeit coins, but they're harder to counterfeit. So there's some nice advantages to, to coins over, over bars. Right. And we actually have an anecdote about coins versus bars when we were traveling to Ecuador. Don't want to get into that, huh? Don't want to get into that. <laughs> Sorry. Fair enough. Forgive, okay. Forgive the uh, dead air, awkward radio moment that that I caused. <laughs> well, you know, we'll tell you what. If you guys come down to see us and want to look at properties, we'll tell you that story offline. Absolutely. <laughs> um. So yeah, so that's that's gold and silver. A little bit on currency. Um, I mean, I think another thing to mention about currency. You know, currency has also has an intrinsic value, um, like other assets, and its intrinsic value it would be the paper that it's printed on. However, it's not worth the paper it's printed on because they've driv they've drawn on it, so you can't even use the paper that it's printed on. So its intrinsic value is zero. Um, it has no backing, and um, it has no value outside of what you know people think it's worth. So and it's not soft either. <laughs> <laughs> So you can't use it for that. <laughs> oh, that's, that's very funny. That's right. That's right. So literally has, has no use. Uh, that's hilarious. Um, you know, and if you look at the monetary history of the world, all currencies return eventually to their intrinsic value. All fiat debt-based currencies return to their intrinsic value of zero. So, you know, go, go study the currencies of the world. Generally, they have a shelf life of, I don't know, 40 years or so, and they return to zero. Now, the U.S. has gone on a lot longer than that for, for reasons we've chatted about before, um, but for structural reasons that were, you know, put in place with, with trade deal or with deals, uh, agreements, treaties. So, you know, you don't, you don't want to be in currency. Um, and you don't want to be in things that are tied to currency should, a cur should the currency go through a major um, downward, downward spin. And downward spin means inflation, you know, because that's what we're looking at, hyperinflation. I mean, the Fed has printed into oblivion now starting in the 70s, you know, but increasing dramatically in the mid-2000s. So, you know, you can look at a chart, for example, of the U.S. money supply, and, and it's almost the same chart as other, money other countries in the world, the euro and others. You can look at a chart of the U.S. money supply, compare that chart to the chart of 
other countries that have collapsed, their currency has collapsed. And you will notice something, it's the same chart. So, you know, what happens is mathematically there comes a point because money is debt-based, because every new unit of currency is issued at interest, when there comes a point um, on that chart where you can't print new money fast enough to pay back the debt on the old money. And so that is when you, you know, get to collapse. There's other reasons you can get to collapse as well, and we've, we're, we've got those check boxes checked as well <laughs> um, if you're talking about the, the dollar. But, um, you know, so that's, yeah, there's just, uh, there's, a, there's, there's no argument to be made for keeping your wealth in, in fiat currency or assets levered to fiat currency. Right, because once they're levered to fiat currencies, then they go the way of fiat currencies. Yeah, and we touched on that last week, but you know that includes most of the world's real estate. If you're in a market where the value of real estate is determined by access to the debt markets, and you're dealing with a currency crisis, you're talking about a collapse in real estate prices. I mean, look at the U.S., for example. I saw a statistic the other day, and I'm sure I'll get this slightly wrong, but I saw a statistic every day the other day. There's something like six or seven or eight, or I, yeah, something like that, homes that are uh, vacant in the U.S. for every homeless person. So what does that tell you about the, the intrinsic value of the of the asset? There's no there's no shortage. We're not talking about something that you know there's a tight tight market like there's not enough homes for people in the states. People keep bidding up the prices of homes because they go, they can go and borrow more money to do so. But if that were to go away, it's not like homes would be so valuable because there's not enough of them. Mm. You know, there's, there's no, there's no. You're not talking about a, a tight supply and demand picture. You're talking right. about, you know, yeah. Yeah, right. No, I mean, you know, just go to Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of homes there. Yes, Las Vegas and, you know, parts of yeah, all over, all over California, Florida, right. 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 But yeah, that's the thing is that, you Baltimore. know, the <laughs> you know, Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> There's some really ugly cities in the Northeast. Bridgeport, Connecticut. <laughs> if anyone's from Connecticut out there, I'm sorry. I love you. I got a lot of friends and family in Connecticut. Man, there's some ugly cities. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Jesse's a lot more diplomatic about Connecticut. Connecticut is the armpit of America. <laughs> oh, come on. Maybe New Jersey. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're they're you know they're going toe to toe for the for the crown. Both like. states I like and have family in, by the way. <laughs> So, although New York certainly, you know, refers to Jersey that way, I suppose. And they literally take a lot of New York's garbage. So perhaps there's <laughs> there's some validity to that claim. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, so I think that covers a good good piece of, of the currency. I mean, obviously, and we touched on this last week as well, but the dem- demand side for the U.S. dollar for the currency is, is equally as bleak. Um, you know, that, that Bretton Woods agreement, which locked in the dollar as the world's reserve currency, is being threatened. Right. And China, we touched on that a little bit last week with the, some of the things that China is doing to grow the demand for their currency um, and all the things that they're doing to position themselves to be added to the special drawing rights um, for uh, the International Monetary Fund. So that is... You've got a lot of, of major emerging economies like Brazil, like Russia, who are, or South Africa as well too, who are positioning themselves to be able to circumvent the dollar and to trade directly uh, between themselves, which is going to lower the demand for the U.S. dollar. Because a lot of the demand for the U.S. dollar is for trade. If everything on the world market is denominated in dollars, well, I need to trade my currency to dollars before I buy whatever it is that I want. And so because of that, the demand for the dollar is artificially high with respect to other currencies that are not the world's reserve currency. Right. So, I mean, think about what what would the dollar be worth if that situation changed, which it is. Because historically, you and again, this goes back to Bretton Woods, you have exactly what Darnell said. You have a situation where everybody in the world needs to b- 
buy dollars before they purchase goods. Well, what it, so so that demand has been there for since since the 40s. So if that demand were to go away at the same time that the U.S. has been printing in 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 historically unheard of levels, what would happen to the value of, of that right. particular currency? Well, th- then the currency would be based just on the value would be based on just what every other world currency is based on, which is the what people believe are the fundamentals of the economy and what they can get paid for for lending their currency to to the United States, which would be, you know, the equivalent of buying treasury bonds. Well, if you think about the United States in the context of the rest of the world, and a lot of people are buying dollars because they feel, well, the U.S. economy right now is the best house in a bad neighborhood. <laughs> um, you know, you've got GDP growth of 3%. But I think they're hiding a lot of the, I think the the headline number hides a lot of the issues. And as evidence of that, I would point to the Federal Reserve and their reluctance to raise interest rates. Now they're saying that we've had the longest bull market in history, yet the Fed is so scared that growth would come in lower than expected if they raised interest rates from zero to one quarter of 1% after they've been zero for, I don't know, six or seven years now? Uh, how strong can that recovery really be if, um, you know, if the monetary authority of the United States is afraid to, to raise interest rates that small of a percentage? I mean, if, if it's that fragile, well, how good is the growth really? If you want to look at the, quote, recovery, um, you know, Social program payrolls, uh, the word is escaping me, but what, you know, what's it called when um, people... Food stamps? Food stamps is, a, is an example Yeah, that chart that we were looking at. Yeah. So food stamps are at or near all-time highs in terms of the people, the number of people receiving food stamps. And the number of people in the labor force is at or near all-time lows. So, you know, there's your recovery. Right. Another point to mention about the labor force is um, what a lot of people don't realize about the unemployment rate is someone, you're only measuring the unemployment rate of people who are in the labor force. Well, if you've stopped looking for a job after a month, you're not in the labor force anymore. And if you have a part-time job and you're underemployed, that isn't, you're not counted as somebody who doesn't have a job. So that doesn't get included in the calculations of the unemployment rate. So it stands to reason that if you're on the government dole in the sense of getting food stamps or other government benefits and are not working as a result, well then <laughs> the you're not in the labor force. And so those n- top line numbers look much better than they actually are and are not indicative in any way whatsoever of the real economic picture of the country. Right, exactly. I mean, all all government numbers are heavily manipulated. Um, Shadowstats.com does a decent job coming up with cl- more real numbers in terms of inflation and unemployment and those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've been changing the formula all along. They, for example, on how inflation is is um, calculated. So, you know, if you, for example, and I, again, I don't have the specific numbers, but if you calculate today's inflation using the metrics that they were using, you know, 30, 40 years ago. I don't know that even the government numbers, you know, we're at like seven or eight or 11% or some, you know, some much higher number of inflation that they tell us is practically zero, you know, is 2% or whatever, right. they, whatever they say. In another way that they hide inflation, and this is something that we didn't really get into last week, um, especially with food prices, is what they'll do instead of raising prices on packaged food is they will maintain the same price but lower the shrink the portion. So it may look on the top line as if, oh, well, you know, I'm still able to buy milk for $2, but if I'm buying three quarters of a gallon instead of a gallon for the same price that I bought, that I used to buy a gallon for, well, that's inflation. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know about that. That's interesting. Um,. All right, where do you want to go from here? Hmm, let's see. 
talk a little bit about some of the market pressures on Ecuador right now. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good place to start to give people an idea of what the lay of the land is market-wise here. So it's an interesting time to be a buyer in Ecuador, I would say, um, because there's a number of factors that have made it so there's a lot of sellers, a lot of people looking to sell, and you know making it making it very much a buyer's market um some of those factors people have made a lot of money in real estate over the last period of time because of how much dollars have been printed so i don't know if they've again increased their buying power but their homes are worth a lot more in dollars than they were you know however many years ago so a lot of people are just cashing in. A lot of people feel like they've made a lot of money and they're cashing in. Again, I don't know that their buying power went up, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't all that long ago in Ecuador that, you know, $1500 would get you a home, you know, like a like a real home, like <laughs> like, yeah. a, like a piece of land in a house. Right. Um so, you know, that guy's selling it for, you know, maybe 100 grand now, 80 grand, 100, you know, he's he's done he thinks he's done quite well and maybe he has I haven't I haven't looked at that. Well, you know, something to 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 sort of put that into context um, that we hadn't talked about offline is the amount of people who came here after 2008. You had a lot of Ecuadorians who had left the country after the currency collapsed in 2000 and went to places like Italy. Spain, the UK, and the United States to earn a living um, because essentially at that point here you couldn't. Um, so all those people left, you know, they, they found work, they made lots of money, and, you know, in 2007, 2008, in all of those places, you know, you had, you know, essentially, a, you know, the worst economic situation since the Great Depression. And as a result, a lot of those people came back and brought their euros or their dollars here to Ecuador. In addition, a lot of Americans, especially, who were looking to retire, you know, they took a big hit on their retirement savings. They're now looking for a place where they can go and, and stretch, their, their, stretch their dollar. Uh, find a place where they can, you know, live on Social Security potentially because they certainly can't do it back home. And Ecuador was one of those places. And from about 2008 to 2013, you had an influx of people who were coming and buying up a lot of those properties. And so, you know, those property prices moved up quite a bit, and the property market here completely changed over that time frame. Right, and still comparatively very cheap. Cheap, right. Although so much interesting, yeah. Comparatively much, you know, comparatively still very, very cheap because over, you know, in that same period of time, because of all the printing that the Federal Reserve was doing and all the money printing that's going on in, in all over the world, asset prices began to, to rise as well, too, um, from a very depressed level. And so now when you compare real estate prices back home versus real estate prices here, you know, here is still relatively cheap as a result. I mean, you know, <laughs> to illustrate this, you know, they also built roads. So, you know, the you know, okay, I've got this piece of land, and you know, if you want to, if you want to uh, drive there, it'll take you six days, and you'll have to, you know, bring uh, spare tires with you, and you know, a guy will have to walk out in front with a with a shotgun to, you know, make sure that you're still on the road, and you know, you don't get attacked by anything. You know, yeah, okay, it's worth fifteen hundred bucks. You know, so they also, you know, built roads, built built everything. The infrastructure here is excellent now, yeah. so of course that's going to also allow for some price appreciation as well. But for whatever reason, you know, people feel wealthier in that way, and so there's a lot of people selling for those reasons. Um, another factor is that uh, credit became is a fairly new phenomenon in Ecuador, and so people went out. And the interest rates are very high here, and a lot of people are just sitting with loans they can't repay. Um, it, the, it's much more difficult to get a loan here. So if anybody has a loan, it means they've put a property up against it and or, and very often and, they've had a number of people sign uh, to be responsible for it if they don't pay. So they're under more pressure than somebody would be under back home or you know, in the States or Europe to sell if they to sell a property if they, or excuse me, to repay a debt, um, because if they don't, they'll lose a property, their friends and family are very like, very possibly are on the hook, um, and they're in, a lot of them are in, you know, it's, it's a tragic situation, it's, 
you know, a lot of them are in 11, 15, even 16. I've even heard, I think, 18% interest loans. Um, and, you know, people here don't make a lot of money. So, yeah, I mean, uh, minimum wage, which has risen quite a bit in the last, you know, six to seven years is, what, $350 a month? Right. So, you know, juxtapose that with a 16% mortgage. Yeah. That, that right. math doesn't work. Or personal loan or, or right. anything else. Yeah, I mean, if you're getting a personal loan here, you're not getting, you're, you're, you're get, it's secured. You're not getting an unsecured personal loan here. Even as a business, I mean, we, as we found out recently, you know, we've got assets to put up against a loan. We've got a, a, a business. We've got, you know, personal savings and all these. And we're, we, it wasn't super easy for us to get a loan. The best interest rate so far that we've come across here for us to get money is 11%. 11% on an over-collateralized loan. Right, on an over exactly, exactly. So that, you know, so a lot of people are selling for that reason. Right. Um, older generations want to sell. They want to give their children money as opposed to land the government has. Or their children want land in, in money in, instead of land. land. As well, too. There's, well, there's a little bit of both. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, well, that's another, you know, that's another reason people are selling is because the kids want to live in the cities. The younger generations don't want to live out on the on the pieces of land that they grew up on or that their family has. They want to move to the cities and live in the cities. So you've got that's another reason. So older generations are selling to avoid some of the government policies and taxes surrounding inheritance. You know, for example, in Ecuador, you you don't get to just decide where your land goes when you die. You the government has a a, a way that that passes on to your children that you can't you don't have power over. So a lot of people sell before they pass away so that they can divide the money amongst their children right. in the way that they choose. Instead of having eight kids fighting over over their inheritance, which they don't really, which is more viewed as a right than a privilege, it's like, well, I'm the child, so I get X. So, you know, that that you hear quite a bit about those fights between heirs of, you know, certain assets. Yeah, sure. absolutely. And, um, you know, some people, uh, some wealthier Ecuadorians just prefer to have their assets out of the country in places like the U.S. Bad choice. Um, but, you know, so a lot of people, there's not a lot of demand here for that reason nationally. Um, the international demand is, is picking up, but there's not a ton of demand for, especially for land. You know, it's like cities, cities are not cheap here to buy properties, but... But for land, there's a lot of it. Most people want to sell, and Ecuadorians are not lining up to buy it. So for if you're looking for land, there's really a lot of factors that, that's in your favor as a buyer. Absolutely. No, and there's also been some uncertainty as a result of some of the policies that um, the government has put forth for proposals with uh, a capital gains tax uh, that would be higher, significantly higher than the current one, as well as uh, a higher inheritance tax that would basically cut the threshold at which you would be required to pay inheritance tax or estate tax in half. Um, the issue with that is they're using as a, a, a stat to justify passing the law, which, again, hasn't been passed yet and doesn't look like it will be passed in its current form, that, you know, only 3% of people are subject to this tax. It's a tax that only impacts wealthy people. And, you know, we need to, we need to take this money to redistribute it and further the success of the quote-unquote citizens' revolution. <laughs> but they, well, at least they don't yet have is a that, socialist sneaker here. Yeah. Is that was that diplomatic <laughs> enough? <laughs> in in Venezuela, in Venezuela, I saw recently. Oh, you meant to get to they, this last week, and you didn't talk. About <laughs> you gave me the you gave me the opportunity. In Venezuela, you know, a openly socialist country, um, where they also had you know many revolutions, people's people's revolutions by all kinds of names. Yeah. I mean. You know, could you get any more? Is there more of an oxymoron than revolutionary government? Right. I mean, that's right there with the jumbo shrimp and adult children. 
So the 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 current president uh, Nicolas Maduro in uh, in in Venezuela, who is you know currently dealing with things like food shortages, <laughs> you know basic staple goods not being available, right. people robbing you, you know people ro- trying to rob government facilities for things like cooking oil, <laughs> <laughs> because the government has taken over food production yeah. and those kinds of things. I actually have a friend yeah. who was there, my old roommate. Yeah. He, uh, his father lives in Venezuela, and he had gone to visit him for, and he stayed there for I don't know, maybe six months or something like that. They have a, they have a, uh, a quota of how many chickens you can buy in a week. So you know, and in, for a family of four or something like that, you're you can you can get up to two chickens per week. It's like it's like the the way they used to ration gas in the states during, during the energy yeah, crisis. So, yeah. It's like oh, if your license plate starts with you know. <laughs> A through, you know, A through, you know, F, then, you know, you can go on Monday. And <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I have uh, my ex-brother-in-law is lives in Venezuela, has a, has a government job, you know, otherwise he wouldn't be there. <laughs> has a government job, you know, they, well, I guess everything's a government job now in Venezuela. I guess, if you, I guess that's also an oxymoron because all jobs are government jobs in, in Venezuela. But um, I heard an interesting stat yeah. about government jobs here. I'll, I'll get into it after you finish. Okay. Very interesting. Um, you know, he's... Uh, He's he's been protected to the sense in that he can buy food uh, because he works the government. He his works at the airport, um, but you know he's 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 leaving or in the process of, of figuring out um, a, a different place to live because of the things that that have gone on there. Um, you know, but I remember a story he 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 told me years ago when Chavez was up for quote election. Um, I mean, they had people overseeing the voting process um if he were to say anything bad about chavez or if he were to vote against chavez he would have lost his job um and you know so that's that's uh the wonders of of socialism in venezuela how did we get on this tangent if we were oh geez we were talking about oh revolutionary government yes yes yeah, I mean, Venez- uh, Ecuador's government, you know, is is ideologically aligned to a large degree, I would say, with places like Venezuela. The difference is, is that the people seem to go along with it for a long time in Venezuela. The people here have had enough of right. the socialist agenda, thank God. Right. And that's but that's a- certainly impacted some of the uncertainty about about um, about Ecuadorians buying properties. Something else Absolutely. that ties into that. Um, that a friend of mine was sharing this with me. He has a friend who um, runs the Office of Tourism for the, through the Ministry of Tourism here in Loja. And he was saying that, that, um, that he's got 22 employees that work there. This, this friend of mine owns a gas station, and he recently had someone from the Ministry of Tourism come to inspect his bathrooms at his gas station. And the... <laughs> I don't know what tourism has to do with gas station bathrooms. But they're paying someone to inspect them. <laughs> yeah, they're paying somebody to inspect them. The person was from Quito. They sent somebody from Quito to look at something in Loja province. Governments um, are very efficient enterprise. And so he, the head of the office here in Loja, was telling him that I've got 22 people in my office. If this was a private business, I would have four. Right. And so you... Th- if you think about this, well, in the if it was a private business, it wouldn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough, but but, but absolutely point taken. <laughs> so you've got 16 million people in Ecuador. Half of those people are either elderly and out of the workforce, or too young to be in the workforce. Sure. So you have another 50 percent of you know 50 percent of the population who's you know work you know could potentially be in the labor force, and out of that 50 percent. Um, something like half of those people are no, maybe two to three thousand of those eight thousand are unemployed. Another, another in between the rest of them, I don't know the another the five or six people, five or six thousand. About half of those people work for private enterprises, and half of those work for public enterprises. And if you think about it, I mean. All of public enterprises are essentially expenses because right. they're they're 
their services that are being their services that are not if they're if they're bringing in money they're just robbing peter to pay paul because they're charging people and they're taking a cut of that yeah right? and they're taking a cut of that you the so essentially you've got a a, a private sector workforce of maybe you know, anywhere between four thousand to, or you know, four thousand to to two hundred, you know, to two thousand five hundred, who are supporting the entire economy, essentially. What do you mean? Well, I'm excuse me, million. I'm sorry, ah, okay. million people. Not, I was, not I was waiting until you finished to clarify. Yeah, but yeah, you, you meant yeah, million. million. Yeah, okay. yeah, right. Got it. Now I'm with you. Yeah. So essentially, four million to two to two million five hundred thousand who are. You know, who are private enterprises who, you know, the government just takes all their money <laughs> or, you know, half of their money right. when they produce stuff. Oh, I mean, I I, I mean, I don't want to get too – I'll just get upset if we keep giving examples <laughs> of these kinds of things. But, I mean, a friend of mine, uh, of ours, um, recently, you know, told me a story. Her father was in the mining industry and – you know, he had a successful business, a successful mining mining operation. This was a gold mine. And, you know, he has since been shut down and the government has stolen all of his equipment. Now, they don't say they've stolen the equipment. They say that they're holding it for him uh, so so that oh, – sorry, there's a dog going crazy outside the window there. But, um, they, uh, they say that they're holding the equipment for him to make sure that they don't – you know, mine the mine, God forbid, his mine. Um, okay. So he's, you know, he's lost his business. He's lost, you know, obviously a good portion of his wealth that was tied up in his work. He's, he can't just sell the equipment? Well, maybe he doesn't I don't want know. to. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But I'm, well, at this point, I would say no. I mean, I don't think he can get it. I mean, I think he's trying to get it back and can't. Um, so it, like, by yeah, the way, it's we're going to hold this for you, but if you get any closer, we'll shoot. <laughs> By, right, exactly. By the way, it's it's the Ministerio de Ambiente, which is the environmental uh, agency in Ecuador, who's you know holding his equipment under you know because we wouldn't want any you know uh, you know it's it's like Agenda Twenty One if you're familiar with that you know they're they're making sure that you know the environment doesn't get hurt so you know they're gonna close your business and steal your stuff. So are are they currently using his mining equipment? Yeah. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we're just going to hold this for you. We're going to use it, make money. I guess that's something that the government could say that they're producing, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> they're going to steal your equipment to produce stuff. Well, what was that great quote you told me by Correa? What about uh, the private oh, versus about public, public sector? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's public sector innovation at its finest. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's steal the stuff that you paid for and paid us taxes on, do stuff with it to earn money for the government. <laughs> I mean, and give you nothing. But um, what was that? You told me like he was making he, a speech. Yeah, he said something. remember? Yeah, he was saying, I forget who it was to or, or yeah. what it was about, well, he was but he was saying, he was being interviewed and he said, I don't know about the private sector, but the public sector is innovating. <laughs> <laughs> Another oxymoron, public sector innovation. I mean... Uh, yeah, so there's certainly some of that here in Ecuador. I think that tide has turned. Um, I think people are, I wouldn't say I think, it's just a fact. People are very fed up with those kinds of things now. Um, the government is not able to push through some of those agendas now. And Correa supposedly is coming up for election, although he's made right. he's made some noise about about wanting to stay on. Um, but it's that kind of uncertainty that creates investment opportunities. Absolutely. When you have divergent opinions about what, you know, how something might impact the economy or what way one trend might go. I think that's the reason why you've got so many high quality properties that are available for sale. And for somebody who, you know, has the wherewithal and has the interest and is looking for the things that Ecuador has to offer, you know, now is a very good time to consider, you know, buying or at the very least taking a look at the options that you might have if you did want to buy. Yeah, I mean, I would make the argument it's if you're, you know, if you have a contrarian investor streak in you, um, not that you need one to invest in Ecuador, but but if you do, I mean, I think you're looking, it's kind of like, I would kind of equate it to, you know, buying, selling the market at the top and buying at the bottom, um, whether it's the stock market or any other. It's like, you know, what are Ecuadorians doing to, I don't know how large a degree, but certainly to a decent sized degree they're for all the reasons we just discussed and more you know they're they're wanting to sell properties to some degree get their assets out 
into dollar into you know other other financial institutions to some degree so that and you know the reason they're doing that is because of all of these things that the government was doing that seemed for a long time like they could go on forever so where are we at now the government can no longer get these proposals through yet those market dynamics haven't changed so you can jump into a buyer's market for all the reasons we talked about at sort of the height of those of those of the fear of those factors we talked about and pick up something in a situation that can only improve because the people won't allow it to go any other direction mm-hmm. at this point um yeah i think that's a good way to to look at it and you know i would say investing in this market you think you have a different set of risks than you do have in in other markets and in three risks that i've identified that i think you know any investor should be thinking about here is you know number one political risk we just you know talked about that uh the other one is liquidity uh because you don't have a you know, international buyers lining up to buy properties here. If you are looking yet. to yet, <laughs> right? Of course, yet. But you know, we're talking about right now. But sure. absolutely, yet. Um, liquidity could be an issue if you were looking to flip a property over a short period of time. So I would recommend looking at properties that you would like to own for multiple reasons, not because, not just because you think um, the price will appreciate over a short period of time. And the other risk as well, too, is that you have a shallow market because you you just don't have a lot of capacity because people are buying properties here because they really like them, because it has some kind of characteristic that they like, as opposed to it's cheap and I can borrow money, so I'm going to buy it. And as a result, um, you have people who are buying properties just for the intrinsic value. And because of that, you have a much shallower market. It's not as deep and yeah, as a result, not as liquid. So those are you know three risks that I think you should seriously consider um, before um, you know, taking the plunge in, in, uh, in purchasing property here in Ecuador. Interesting piece of that, and also in terms of valuation. Outside of the cities, land here is valued by its productivity whether that's cows for for milk or whether that's you know stuff that you're growing or whether that's timber or you know whatever whatever you're using the land for it's valued based on its ability to produce um, so that's just another interesting I don't know that that's so much the case in the states for example I think it's more like well hey it's it's this area it's this neighborhood it's this part of this place it's got ocean or you know whatever right um or because this person values this in this way it's much more so looking at what other people value the aspects of your property in the way that other people value yeah yeah and just for different reasons right maybe social reasons or you know these are where these people live right yeah. Although there's a little bit of that too here in the cities. In the cities. Yeah, I mean Not the city's the valuation here is kind of insane, but in the in the for land, it's it's it makes a lot of sense the way properties get valued. Right. Right. Um. Yeah, I mean it's also, you know, we were talking earlier about currency, and let's just take you down a hypothetical road very briefly. Let's say that. The inevitable happens in the U.S., and I don't. I don't have a time frame for that. Time time frames are impossible. But the inevitable happens in the U.S., and and the, the dollar hyperinflates or or has some sort of major hiccup. Um, you know, I mean, the U.S. is not a place to be in that kind of environment. I would argue Canada, Russia, or Europe, and other places are also not great places to be in that environment. And the U.S. supermarkets, for example, have a three-day food supply. And your food in the U.S. comes from a couple of places in the country, a few at best. Yeah, one of um, which is having one of the most serious droughts in the history of droughts. Right. So in California. So you know, if you if if there was a seize up in the financial markets and the debt markets, if people lost confidence in the currency because of hyperinflation, you would have a situation very quickly in the U.S. where you know 400 million people, something like that many of which are armed, are out of food, and and you've got, you know, a, a government who is also armed to the teeth who would be very interested in keeping order and play out however they want. You know, that's that's kind of one scenario. Well if you're in if you're in Ecuador, very sparsely populated country, 
most people grow food who don't who live outside of the cities. People live closer to the land. You know, it's not really a big change if the currency were to were to alter. I mean, they well, hey, they went through it not that long ago, yeah. actually, um, when the Sucre collapsed. Um, you know, I mean, you can't the the furthest away by car that any food would come from in the part of Ecuador that we're in would be like you know seven hours, and that's just fruit. Anything outside of fruit, the furthest away would be, would be like three, four, five hours. And 80 to 90% of it would be within a couple, you know, within two or three. And probably, probably 50, 60% of it within, you know, an hour, hour and a half. So, absolutely. Very different situation that way. You know, Quito and maybe some of those places would be in, in bad shape, potentially, if um, there was some seismic shift in the in the currency or the economic situation but you know people would barter and people would here would just kind of go back to what they did maybe not all that long ago so just another interesting interesting caveat interesting note on that so i think uh we leave it there at this point what's do we have uh somebody scheduled for an interview for next week not not as of yet um i would say grab another guest for you yeah either way With that, we'll uh, tell you guys to have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us for the fifth Abundant Living Ecuador podcast, and we'll be back next week with more. Thanks again. Take care.